This episode of Zero Brightness is brought to you by you. You can head to patreon.com slash zero brightness to sign up to support the show directly and get bonus content multiple times per week. Thank you to everyone who supports the show, and I look forward to meeting more of you soon. Tribute has an incredibly long history in the arts. In the classical painting tradition, artists were encouraged to do studies off of the artists that they admired. In folk music, that's basically the foundation of the entire genre. Standards or songs that are passed down from generation to generation form the backbone of what folk music is. Now, it varies from culture to culture, but generally there are standards that everybody knows. And when an artist records a new version of it or performs a new version of it, they're basically putting their own spin on it. In the modern age, opinions have somewhat varied on the idea of paying tribute with your own art. Growing up in the 90s and coming of age throughout the 2000s, there was this very strong idea that originality was like the pinnacle of all art. If something that you were making could be seen as a ripoff, then you were done. However, it was also at that same time that people's stances towards, you know, paying tribute to something started to soften. I think especially in the gaming space, we started to see things move away from innovation at all costs towards, we can have a little bit of tribute as a treat. To me, the ground zero of this is really the Game Boy Advance. Maybe this will give you guys a better idea of what I mean when I say something is a tribute. The Game Boy Advance was kind of seen initially as like a portable Super Nintendo. So beyond the massive amount of Super Nintendo ports that we got onto the Game Boy Advance, we also got a lot of new games that were in the same style as 16-bit games. You know, one of the early big blockbuster titles on the GBA that was an original game was, of course, Golden Sun, which was kind of a throwback to a Breath of Fire-style RPG game. Later, Nintendo started making Metroid games for the console that were very, very heavily inspired by Super Metroid, and we saw them putting their own spin on it while still remaining very, very faithful to that game's design style, art style, and gameplay. Konami and Capcom also get in on it too, big time. Konami notably made all the 2D Castlevania games on the Game Boy Advance that I love so much and I've talked about so, so much on this show. And rest assured, I'll talk about it more in the future. I think those Castlevania games are kind of what got me excited about this sort of throwback or tribute style game because at that time, it was the only way that the Castlevania series could really keep going. Konami was also producing 3D Castlevania games, but they just weren't very good. At this time, if you wanted to play just a really good Castlevania game that was a super fun experience and that also had a fair amount of innovation and original ideas, you had to play one of these 2D Game Boy Advance Castlevania titles. Even on consoles at the time, and specifically with horror games, a lot of the standout titles were essentially based on something else or paying tribute to something else. I'm thinking somewhat of Capcom's Resident Evil remake, but even more so of Eternal Darkness. 
Eternal Darkness is a really interesting game because it's sort of based on the cosmic horror mythos of H.P. Lovecraft, but it's not directly based on it, and it takes a lot of liberties with even the idea of a cosmic horror mythos. There's no familiar characters or even overt references to H.P. Lovecraft besides just it generally has the tone and it generally has the feel. And I think it's a much better work for not trying to base itself strictly off of that author's work. They can take their own liberties, they can establish their own mythos, they can create a sense of mystery that draws in the player. They can also, of course, avoid all the weird racism that pervades H.P. Lovecraft's work. And the longer you read and think about it, the more you realize that it's kind of the heart of his messaging, if not his style. Like those Game Boy Advance games, I think Eternal Darkness gave people a modern update of something they love and showed how it could be done in a different and just as fascinating way. You're probably noticing here that I'm listing off some of my favorite games ever. So yes, you could say that I have a soft spot for games that try to pay tribute to something from the past and try to revitalize something for the modern era. And while that's true, I kind of feel like the last five or six years have made me a little bit more wary of those kind of games as well. Now that the whole 90s aesthetic and the survival horror style of gameplay is sort of blown up among indie devs, we've kind of been hit with a glut of, I don't want to say shitty, but kind of mediocre games that borrow older aesthetics just to have something to put on the box, just to have a headline to sell the game. It's definitely how I felt about that game back in 1995. That's somewhat how I felt about The Glass Staircase, even though I do think that creator's later works do get better. Still, I don't think anything could have dampened my enthusiasm for World of Horror. When I first heard about this game, I was super, super psyched because the headline was basically, hey, somebody made a Junji Ito game. It looks like a super old 80s PC game and contains tons of references to Ito. I mean, how could I not love that? It's one of my favorite authors and the game's graphic design is absolutely incredible. I was super hyped. And yet, I stayed away for a super long time for a couple of reasons. Number one, the game was in early access. That's another thing I kind of have an uneasy relationship with. I never know if it's going to be a solid experience that I can take a break from and come back to later when it's officially released, or if it's going to be a broken, buggy mess. The other problem with these kind of tribute games, you know, relative to doing this show, is that sometimes they're kind of hard to talk about. Usually, I only want to cover them so that I can talk about the thing that they're inspired by. And I guess that's sort of more or less what the bulk of this episode is. Fair warning to you, listener. World of Horror is a really odd game that's incredibly niche and raises a lot of questions about adaptations and authorship. And that's why I invited on my friend and comics artist Hannah Vardit, who you'll hear from soon, to discuss those topics and to talk about Junji Ito in general. But before that, I did want to talk a little bit about World of Horror, which is a game that I spent quite a bit of time playing. So, World of Horror is a roguelike, point-and-click, RPG, sort of dungeon-crawler type game that's very, very solidly in the 80s style. 
I talk about these games a little bit in the Killer7 episode, but these are the kind of games you would have expected to come out of Japan in the 80s. And even more so than being a Junji Ito tribute, I think World of Horror is really a tribute to that entire era and aesthetic. That's one interesting wrinkle here. It's not just, you know, somebody made a Junji Ito fan game. It's like somebody made a game that pays tribute to all the stuff that they would expect a Junji Ito fan or, you know, a fan of older manga to enjoy. The creator of the game himself describes it as a one-bit cosmic horror made by one dude in MS Paint. Yet despite that, it has an incredibly amazing look. The visual design is great. The character designs are very solidly in that sort of pretty 80s Japanese style. And the cosmic horror thing ends up not just being an aesthetic or a throwaway aspect of the game. Essentially, this is a roguelike game. So each time you start it up, you're meant to just kind of have one play. There's no saving as of yet. I guess that's a future promised feature. But you're pretty much just going to jump in, have an adventure start to finish one way or another. The game is turn-based. When you start, you can go to your apartment and you can start a mission or you can just kind of poke around, change your clothes, relax, whatever you want to do. When you start a mission, you are kind of thrown into another screen that is sort of an abstract representation of a classic dungeon crawler interface. Depending on the mission, you're in a different environment. You have different rooms or areas you can go to. Each area lets you explore or take different actions and there's a chance you might have to enter combat. It's pretty simple, but it's also made very overwhelming and even a little bit confusing when you first start because of the visual design. Now, once again, it's great. It looks great. It's also absolutely bonkers. There's so much information on screen that it can be sometimes hard to follow what's going on. I definitely recommend taking it really slow on your first play so you can figure out what all the mechanics are and how they work. I don't think this is a game where you're going to need to Google a lot of shit to understand what's going on, but you are going to have to just go slow, read all of that text, and take your time. One thing that's really fun about this game is that each of those missions is really unique. Currently, there aren't a ton of them, but each one has like a different feel, a different look, and a different gameplay style. So one, for example, has you going to an old manor for a funeral. You have to move from room to room and talk to the family members to try and figure out what's going on. Once enough time passes, things start to get weird and supernatural shit starts to happen. Another one will have you exploring a forest, looking for clues leading up to a crazy boss battle that is super surprising the first time that you play it. And hanging over your head the entire time as you play is the threat of the apocalypse. There's essentially like a doom stat that increases each time you take a turn. And if you take too much time, the world ends. At the start, when you're rolling your character, just like you would in any roguelike game, you're basically given an alignment to one of the quote unquote old gods. And that affects your stats and some slight quirks about the game. But it also reminds you that there's a timer. The game also has kind of an interesting relationship with difficulty. I think that at its core, it is an extremely hard game. And if you're hearing me describe these systems and you're like, oh yeah, that sounds really rough. And I haven't even mentioned the status effects, which Jesus Christ, they're going to eat your fucking lunch. You know what I mean? And yet the game gives you multiple options for difficulty and basically a super easy mode. So anybody can boot this game up 
and play through the story and see it start to finish. I think the fun of it after that becomes playing it over and over and over and trying to discover different things about it and unlock different details of stories. The most fun that I had with this game was sort of playing it as a choose-your-own-adventure game, especially if you can play it with friends. It becomes super, super fun to argue over little decisions or slightly change the tactics that you're using. Also, despite not having a ton of content right now, like I said, these systems are really, really deep. So you might do one playthrough and get every status ailment and just absolutely be a hot mess the entire time. You might play another one where you just power through it because you rolled a really good character. There's a lot to uncover and explore in the game, and once again, it is still in early access. I'm looking forward to seeing where it lands eventually, because I think it's going to be really, really cool. But it is still very fun and engaging right now. I also want to say that I do think it's actually a very good adaptation of Ito's work in that Eternal Darkness or Castle Rock style, where you're creating your own kind of larger horror mythos that's heavily based on the work of one author. I think having things rooted so heavily in a static visual style and making things feel like a choose your own adventure novel or like you're reading a comic book gives this game a really unique vibe and one that works super well when viewed as a tribute to that kind of source material. It's interesting that it's another European developed game that heavily borrows Japanese ideas and aesthetics and just nails it. I'm of course thinking of Friends of Ringo Ishikawa, which is another game that shares a lot of those same qualities. But like I said earlier, covering these games, it's not always the most enticing prospect to me. I like to cover things where I have a strong stance on it or where there's a topic that my guest has a strong stance on, something you can really dig into and talk about. World of Horror doesn't really have that, but it does raise some really interesting questions. Most notably, who's Junji Ito? And how do you adapt the work of such a singular author into different media? And in order to have that conversation, I figured the best person to ask is my friend, Hannah Vardy, a comics artist working out of New York who has done a bunch of really, really amazing work and is currently working on her debut graphic novel, Full Court Crush, which is expected to be released in 2024 with First Second. I'm going to link her website in the show notes because she's not only an artist you really should be following, but also someone who really, really knows about making cool tribute works as well as great original work. All right, so let's just play the theme song already and we'll get into the real shit.
Hello. Hello. <laughs> I asked you to come on the show and talk to me about Junji Ito. And the reasoning was that I, I remembered vaguely. I was like, I think the first conversation that we ever had was just about manga. And a lot of it was about Junji Ito. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh-huh. And because he's awesome. Yeah. Junji Ito rules. And <laughs> um, and I know that like like you have a healthy appreciation for him, a lot of knowledge about like general like comics in general, but also manga just based on our conversations and stuff. Um sure. so yeah, you know, uh the other thing is about this podcast specifically is that Junji Ito has been like lurking in the margins of it appropriately. <laughs> like there's just every other episode like Junji Ito comes up and there's just like 15 seconds of like, yeah, Junji Ito's the best. So I'm like, let me just get this out of my system now that there's like this Junji Ito type. Oh, game. yes, the game. And just in general, it's been fascinating to watch like his profile just like explode. I think. Yeah. Right? I'm not crazy yeah, for thinking for that. Sure. Right? Yeah. No, <clears throat> no, suddenly he's everywhere and I'm very happy about it. Yeah. Everyone's like, Junji Ito, rate my cat video. And he's like, okay. <laughs> Because he'll do it, because he's a sweet, sweet man. It's really nice to see his profile rise to the level of, like, SoundCloud rapper, where, like, he'll just get asked, like, <laughs> asked to appear in weird videos like that, where it's like, we showed Junji to a bunch of cats, you know? Yeah, it's the best. And he's, like, rates them. He's like, yes, very scary. <laughs> Not scary. Very scary. How did you first, like, get into Junji Ito's stuff? If you remember, that's a good question. I have no idea. Um, I can tell you specifically how I remember them arriving to me, which because I got them, uh, I ordered them on eBay or something. I ordered Uzumaki, and it was around Halloween time because the person who sent me one of the volumes sent it to me with like Reese's candy. Okay, and I was so grateful. I was like, oh boy, you <laughs> sent me a little treat and a comic. I'm so happy. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, that's awesome. And I feel that everyone should send me comics this way. <laughs> With candy in it. I don't remember what drew me specifically to Junji. It must have come from... Some, oh, you know what it was? It was because of Curse of Amigara Fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was one of those things. It was just going around. It was making the internet rounds. People were like, have you heard about this comic? Mm-hmm. Have you heard about this the whole comic with the mountain and I was like the what with the what? <laughs> and you had to, I had to like Google it because I could never remember the full name and of course it's, it's pretty easy to search for your like haunted mountain holes <laughs> they're like do you mean Junji Ito? Yeah. Yes Google yes I do thank you. Yeah. And uh, so I read that and I was like oh I am terrified for my life uh-huh. I don't care for this at all but I really like it and want more Yeah. And um then eventually I sort of sniffed out some of his series. And I think at the time, the only things that were out in the U.S. Um, were Uzumaki. And I think maybe Tomie? It was one other big one of his. I remember at that time, Uzumaki was out. There was a collection of Tomie stories. And I think Gyo was also out. Um, the, oh yes, the one with the like. Yo, fish, I haven't read fish with legs, the sharks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you heard his reasoning? Have you heard his reasoning for why he made it? Uh, no. They're like, what was the idea behind Gyo? And he was like, well, sharks are very scary. If they came on land, it would be even scarier. 
<laughs> yes, it would be Junji. I mean, yes, that's that's fucking solid. <laughs> like, he's not wrong. Yeah, not that's wrong. it's the most pu- it's the purest rationale. <laughs> yeah, that's bulletproof. Like, who is going to argue with that? You know what I mean? Oh, sharks on land. Very scary. Super scary. Uh, well, okay, so that's really funny for a couple of reasons. Because number one, I had the same experience with Amigara Fault. I think that comic has been making the rounds on the internet for like 20 years. Like since the early 2000s. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? It's like this weird like internet urban legend comic. Yeah. Because it's never on like an official site. It's always someone scanlated it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yes. It doesn't seem to exist in print anywhere, does it? I mean, by now, surely yes. In the U.S., anyway. Yeah, it was a bonus comic for one of the longer novels. So I remember it being like a bonus comic at the end of one of the volumes of Uzumaki, but the internet says I'm wrong and it's at the end of Gyo. I'm willing to accept that that's true. That makes more sense because I never saw it in Uzumaki and that's the only print one I own. Yeah. Except for his cat comic. Yeah, the cat comics. Um, I love them so much. Yeah. So one one side note here that I do, because you said it, and I definitely, it's in my notes of of stuff I want to talk about, is the main reason that I was able to get into Jinjito, like when I was in high school or middle school or whenever, it must have been high school, like when I first read his stuff, was because of scanlation websites, which enough people don't know about that when I said that word in an early episode of this show like a bunch of people uh, like discovered that and were like you just like uh, changed my life yeah basically and I was like <laughs> that's really weird I thought everybody knew about this but anyway so there's these that's common knowledge yeah there's these groups called like scanlation groups and they literally just take manga scan it in translate it themselves like redo the lettering um, mm-hmm. and upload it to the internet so yeah in the like 2000s when a lot of this stuff was not being published in english right or some stuff was being published but uh because they had to flip the art like the quality was really low sometimes the translations were bad scanlation groups got really popular because people were like this is the better version also it's not you know 18 dollars a volume right you know so that was my thing was i just couldn't afford this shit and like for sure so i got way into scanlation sites a lot of times now what i do is if i read the scanlation and i like it and i continue reading it i'll try and find it in japanese and just like buy a volume Mm -hmm. because i feel like an asshole otherwise like oh i can't read this all for free yeah sometimes i'm pretty lucky and it's a series gets popular enough that like it gets translated um for the u.s and yeah. released in an official edition and I'm like yeah yeah now I can own it now I can display it prominently in my home yeah for sure so people come over and be like observe my excellent taste <laughs> clearly this person is cool <laughs> they're like oh, <laughs> oh I gotta go <laughs> that's that's honestly how I feel about like my audio setup is that like whenever people see it they're just like oh my god like what is wrong with you <laughs> nothing I'm fine <laughs> it's fine it's not a problem <laughs> it's normal I whenever I want to <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly um but yeah, like at that time, I was in the scanlation because it was just stuff that was just not available at all in English. Yeah. And so, you know, like I love horror stuff in, in any media. And so when I was into manga, I was like, 
oh, well, there must be cool horror manga, right? And the answer is yes, mm. but just at that yes. time, not in English. One of the only things that was out in English officially was Gyo, um, mm. which is just like such a weird and funny story that I got a bunch of my friends into Jinji Ito because we just liked weird outlandish shit, like regardless of what it was. Sure. And I was like, oh, you guys want to see some sharks walk? Like, here's the manga where sharks <laughs> walk. Yes, yes, I do. Do you want to see the scary version of? Oh, what was what was the name of that show from like the nineties? What's the? Sh- they were sharks, but they were people. Uh, street sharks, street sharks. But yeah, <laughs> scary street sharks. The horror version of street sharks. Yes, that's what it is. <laughs> You're that's extremely accurate. Yeah, no, that's that's super <laughs> accurate. Um, Junji Ito's street sharks. <laughs> Okay. I'd watch that. I would watch the Genji Ito <laughs> reboot of um, of Street Sharks for sure. Oh my god, imagine. It'd be horrific. <laughs> It'd be incredible, yeah. I always thought Street Sharks were scary and gross, though. Mm. The proportions are strange. Well, and even the, like, my neighbor was really into him, and he had some of the toys, and the toys were, like, a fucked up size. Like, do you, do you ever see a Street Shark toy in real life? I'm Googling it right now. <laughs> They're big. They're just like weirdly big. I don't know. You know, it's like you got GI Joe size. <laughs> yeah, look up a scale. Street shark toy. I need to see scale. this. <laughs> all pictures of the toys on their own. This tells me nothing. I think, oh, here's one next for a ruler. <laughs> they are large. They're weirdly big. Why are they so big? I don't know. Oh, here's one held by a person who may or may not be a Backstreet Boy. Oh, it's Vin Diesel. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Uh, please please send me that image <laughs> there's something ominous like if, if you're at your friend's house and you're a little ass kid and there's like a bunch of toys okay this image is amazing <laughs> look how huge that fucking street shark is unnecessarily large it's it's bicep is like the same size as Vin Diesel's yeah Vin Diesel looks like a street shark in this <laughs> is Vin Diesel a street shark that is the new co- that's what this podcast is about I think that's the name of this episode for sure um <laughs> No, these proportions are weird. Their their arms are like attached to their heads. Mm-hmm. I don't know about these street sharks. Yeah, well, I, have a, I have a Twitter friend who loves street sharks and has redesigns of them that are very very good. And quick shout out, yeah. because it's important for street shark purposes. Oh, yeah. Named Shanti Rickers, Shanti Rickers okay. with two T's. They do. They have like their pin tweet, like these very, very cool street shark redesigns. Nice. And I would watch them. Yes, I would. Yeah. I just, I just remember like with the toys that it was like their standard size sizes for like toys at the time, like right. You know, because like GI Joes, little GI Joes are the same size as like Star Wars figures, and there's like mm-hmm. slightly larger figures, like the goofy um, troll, the tough trolls, the ones with the gems in their chest. You know, we're like a little bit. Do you know? Okay. Oh, those. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. I know what you're talking about like the, like the movie trolls. Uh, I haven't seen the movie trolls. I think that te- they're actually called gem protectors or stone protectors oh no i don't know what this is at all this is a new thing for me okay apparently i just dreamt this or some shit because like nobody (laughs) knows what it is but those were a little bit bigger than a gi joe but then you got a street shark and it was like this is just fucking huge what is the meaning of this okay i have looked up trolls gem protectors these are terrifying Mm -hmm. i have never seen them before 
Okay, so I don't care for this at all. <laughs> there were some toys that I thought were kind of like fun to collect when I was a kid. Like mm-hmm. I liked uh, well, Star Wars figures mainly. I liked the little Star Wars figures. Sure. Those were really fun. Uh, I wasn't super into GI Joes, but um, I did like Batman figures also for the same reasons because they were like a bunch of variants of them, and they were just kind of fun to like kind of collect. Uh, yes. But then randomly, I just really like those tough troll dolls. And uh, oh no, it wasn't random. It was because I also liked Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But that makes sense. Those were super hard to collect. So like, they were. Yeah, I would think they'd be super easy. Well, they just like all the desirable ones would like sell out. And oh, so I, was, like, I see. Do you want Raphael dressed as a clown? And it's like, I mean, I guess. Yes, very much so. Yes, I do want this. Thank you. <laughs> It's important. You should look that don't up. Don't ask me what I need it for. <laughs> that's the real thing. It's the real thing? That's absolutely oh. a real thing. I don't know if it was him specifically, but look up clown TMNT. You'll find it. I have found something much more horrific. Thank you, internet. <laughs> I'll never sleep again. Well, that's a great segue back in the Junjito. The cosmic horror of 90s toys is so real. <laughs> I hate it. Oh, I hate it. This is what you give to a, like a child you hate. Yeah. <laughs> That was the thing about like 90s toys was that they were basically all just like all about like variants. So it was like, okay, well, you have your core characters and we'll just make as many variants of them as possible. And it just got to this ridiculous, unsustainable endpoint of like, why are there this many fucking variants? Like, why is there a clown Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle? You know, like, why? For nightmares. Yeah. For terror. Yeah. (laughs) For, for something to talk to your therapist about later. Yeah. You're like, it all comes back to this clown Raphael I had as yeah. a child. They used to make these Batman toys, too, that looked like all over print hoodies or something. Like, it would just be a normal Batman, but he'd just have a weird, like, all over print of, like, camo or uh-huh. just, like, polka dots or, like, whatever. Uh-huh. I was like, why did you make these? I had, oh, I had my Barbies. I loved my Barbies. Yes, I did. Nice. That's what I had. Yeah. Yeah. My oldest sister collected Barbies. And they had all these outfits. Yeah. All those shoes. I don't know why they bothered making them little shoes. That was the first <laughs> thing to go every time. Yeah. And I always feel sad when I hear stories about people who like purposefully mutilated their Barbies. And I'm like, no, they had souls. They had <laughs> souls. They were living things. How dare you? They're You're a war doll. criminal. <laughs> <laughs> Straight to jail with you. Holy shit. For Barbie crimes. Did you ever get to the phase of collecting them but keeping them in the boxes? No, 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 no. No, they all came out of the boxes. Me and my sister, we had like elaborate storylines with them. Nice. It was a whole thing. It was a whole soap drama. Yeah. You got to do it. It was insane. Yeah. You have to. You have to do it. Okay. One of them was like the evilest Barbie. Yes. What? <laughs> Wait, no, tell me. <laughs> no, tell, tell me more about the evil. Actually, uh, I was going to go one way, but we're choosing a different path. Tell me more about the evilest Barbie. <laughs> well, what happened was we gave her a bad haircut. <laughs> <laughs> you gave her one haircut and suddenly she was Voldemort, dude. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> It's just what happens. Has this ever happened to you in real life? Because it certainly happened to me. <laughs> no, she got. We gave her a haircut. She had this long blonde hair, and we cut it, and it became just really foofy. Uh huh. Just like by the nature of whatever it's made out of. 
Yeah. And we were like, she looks like a grandma. And then we decided that made her evil, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. And she was always trying to kill them. That's pretty sick, though. It's very weird. We had to, like, put her away for her own good. Yeah. (laughs) It's a whole thing. Yeah, to retire the evil Barbie. That's cool, though. Lest she harm the others who are just living their own lives, minding their business. Yeah. But that's, like, real soap opera shit, is that... Mm Mm-hmm. There's always the evil uh, matriarch or some, some kind, right? Yeah, there has to be, like, evil older woman and evil older man. We did not have an evil older man because obviously the men are, are few and few and far between in the Barbie world. Yeah, that's true. I think the only soap opera I've watched a lot of, uh, like when I was a kid, was Days of Our Lives. And on that I don't show, think I've ever watched Days of Our Lives. yeah, it's mm-hmm. it is what it is. Oh no, you know what? We also watched one called um, Passions. Did you ever watch Passions? Oh, I've heard of Passions. Yeah, I've not ever seen Passions. Passions is insane. Passions is like a soap opera if you if it was on acid or if you were on acid. Oh, like, it's completely oh, no. <laughs> fucking out of control, especially as it goes. Like it starts kind of normal. And then I think like halfway through the show, they're just like, fuck it. And so it's all like, what is the time period for this? When is this? When was this on? Um, is it one that ran for like forever and ever? I think ran for a while. I think it started in the late '90s and probably went through at least the mid 2000s. Um, oh, okay, so it's newer than um, yeah, Days of Our Lives. Yeah, no, it's not one of those forever shows. Yeah, that mm-hmm. went on for decades. It wasn't like that. It was a much weirder soap opera. But Days of Our Lives, the name I always love the names of the bad guys, like because the evil older woman oh, in that yes. show was Marlena. And the bad Perfect. old man was named Stefano. <laughs> Stefano. Yeah. Yes. Oh, which of course I know this because of Legally Blonde. Oh. It's in her submissions video to Harvard. Oh. When she recaps Days of Our Lives for her, her friend. Dude, not gonna lie, Days of Our Lives like kind of rocked. Um, I was- gotta watch some soaps. The closest I ever got to watching soap operas was watching CW shows. Mm, yeah. Which is it's sort of like a gateway, I feel, into soaps. Yeah, like they're they're better shot and they have like, you know, cooler quote unquote music or mm-hmm. like whatever. Sure. They feel more current. So like with yes. soap operas, the stuff at least the stuff I'm talking about, you have to throw all that out the window and you're just like Yep. I don't care. Like welcome to Cartoon Land. Yeah. It's nineteen seventy eight also for some reason. Perfect. Forever. Always, all the time, constantly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um yeah, I love that Perfect. So Junji Ito. <laughs> anyway. Um, no, this is great. I love I love these uh, these <laughs> tangents. I'm living for it. Um, good, good, good. But okay, so Junji Ito. I guess if anyone doesn't know who Junji Ito is, like you've probably already shut this off and you're really lost. But if you're still here, um, <laughs> he's you don't know who Junji Ito is. Then stop this podcast and go read some Junji Ito, and then never come back to this podcast. <laughs> There you go. That's the official recommendation for sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so he's he's a horror manga author. Uh, he's been working for a very long time, but you know, kind of like we alluded to earlier, he sort of was somewhat. Uh, he had a cult following in the West throughout like the two thousands, and then 
throughout like the last decade, he's really blown up into being like very popular and very influential. Like you said earlier, you just see him everywhere, um, mm-hmm. which is awesome. But it's also interesting just because he's been working for so long and he's so influential that especially for fans of like horror or anything, but especially like horror movies, horror video games, they've seen a lot of stuff that's like influenced by his work. And I think that's kind of why he's blown up more recently because people are going and back and reading his stuff and being like, oh, this reminds me of Silent Hill or this reminds me of like this movie I like or like mm-hmm. whatever, just because he's been like hugely influential. Right. Yeah. I would love to know specifically like creators today in various formats who can link themselves directly back to Junji. So I don't know of any specifically off the top of my head, but I know that they exist. They have to. Yeah. Well, for sure. I mean, I think that I, I do think that Jinjito, one of the reasons that he's so like exciting and why people like us who love his work are like so excited about it is because he kind of created a unique lane that combines a bunch of things without being mm-hmm. any of those things. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that his work has a lot of body horror in it, for example. Oh, yeah, so much. (laughs) Yeah, but it also has a lot of, like, cosmic horror or, like, this idea of, like, these larger unseen forces that you can't control. Um, It's also super apocalyptic and surreal. So it kind of wraps all those things together in a way that's kind of like unexpected and so it's not any one of those things like you wouldn't say oh he's a surreal artist or or he's a cosmic horror artist or anything one thing he's just like doing his own thing if you like horror manga i think a lot of it trends towards being very like ugly like purposefully ugly like even you know two of his big influences that he cited are kazuo umezu and hideshi hino is one of them the Catboy guy or the Moving Classroom guy? Uh, Kazuo Umezu did both of those, yep. Ah, okay, yes. But you know what I mean? Like, Umezu. the other one you said? Oh, uh, Hideshi Hino. He do. Um, Hideshi uh, Hino did a relative- Oh, I've never seen any of these. Yeah. Of, of this guy's stuff. Hideshi Hino is pretty interesting. I, I think he's yeah okay. You just saw his stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, looking yeah. at it. Yeah, no. it's, oh no, oh no. <laughs> I think he's most notable as like a multimedia artist because like his drawings would pop up everywhere in the 2000s, and that's how I first like I first knew him not through um, like his comics. The most popular of which I think is Panorama of Hell, just like a kind of a novella, like graphic novella. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was literally just from seeing like t-shirts and stuff that has art on it. And it's all so uh, weird and grotesque that I was like, this is cool. Who is this guy? Um, sure. And he also, uh, he also wrote and directed to like pretty famous Japanese gore movies called uh, Flower of Flesh and Blood and Mermaid in a Manhole. Those were two movies I really liked when I was a teenager who watched a lot of edgy shit. Um, but anyway... <laughs> Uh, right when you were like I'm cool no one understands me I'm gonna watch the weirdest thing I can possibly find yeah exactly and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't 
Yeah, I mean, those. so they're in a series called Guinea Pig, and like, I'm kind of 50-50 on those movies. I still think they are kind of cool, but they also are kind of just like dumb, like gore mm. movies. And I sure. generally don't like to talk to people who are super into gore shit, you know, like. They're a special, special bunch. Yeah. And and I love that for them. And we can just keep doing our own thing separately. Sure. Not, not, my, not my bag. While I appreciate some well-used, some well-placed gore, some well, well-used gory stuff, it's not what I seek out. Yeah. Generally. That's a great way to put it. I agree with that. Um, Yes. But yeah, so in terms of looking at like Kazuo Umezu and Hideshi Hino and artists like that, Mm. I think there's a trend towards them being ugly. Like Mm -hmm. Kazuo Umezu is is a great manga artist. If the listener isn't familiar with that, yeah, you can check out uh, The Adventures of Catboy or uh, Drifting Classroom are his most famous works mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I love his stuff but it has like a rough look to it yeah you know and yeah for sure I think Ito is interesting because his stuff doesn't have that look at it's all it's beautiful yeah it's so lovely it's very pleasant to look at until it really really isn't mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah uh, it just gets you I think that was part of what drew me to it was that it didn't look like typical horror manga which i think was also why i stayed away from it for so long i just didn't like the aesthetic the whole look of it was just not appealing to me and specifically it's not meant to be appealing Mm. i think yeah it didn't draw me in for that reason and junji what ito stuff was like oh this is very pretty yeah this is so nice oh it's terrifying (laughs) yeah well and i do think too that they're um there is like a shift in style for horror manga, which also weird side note, there isn't like a ton of horror manga. Every once in a while I go and I'm like, let me find like everything there is that isn't just like horror themed, like shoujo or shonen, like just normal shit, mm-hmm. you know, like really find something that's like actually like horror. Uh, sure. And there's, there's not a lot of it, but there is like a shift like post Jinji Ito where a lot of that stuff kind of borrows his aesthetic of like yeah everything is very beautiful mm-hmm. the drawings are super clean and like architectural mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. characters are very like lithe and like just clean you know they just look like clean you know were you the one who was telling me about parasite probably someone was telling me to watch parasite and i think i gave it a shot and i was like it's too gross and weird for me <laughs> <laughs> uh well the anime of parasite is really different than the manga Ah, okay. So I think you would like the manga because you like delinquent stuff. I do like delinquents. They're my favorite kind of characters very much always. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Once again, for the listener, if you're not familiar, there's a trope in manga and anime and even other stuff, but I think it's most closely associated with like manga and anime of like these characters called delinquents and they're usually teenagers. Like, how would you describe it? Like rockabilly teenagers kind of? That's no, that's exactly right. <laughs> they usually like for the boys, if you're a delinquent boy and you're in high school, mm-hmm. you're usually seen always wearing your school uniform, even outside of school. It's a conscious choice to be like, fuck you, I'm still wearing my uniform and I, I do my hair in a pompadour, like a cool guy. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's dyed in a color mm-hmm. that is not black. Um but nothing like nothing like super uh unnatural like you won't see a blue hair but it will be something lighter it'll be like bleached 
Yeah, or red or something. Um, and if you're a delinquent girl, you wear your skirt super, super long, like to the floor, because mm-hmm. it's like a statement against the fetishization of young girls who, you know, with very, very short skirts. Right. For instance, they're like, now I'm going to wear it all the way down to the ground. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very cool and very scary. <laughs> Yeah. And the best ones, I think, have hearts of gold. Oh, yeah. Always. They're like, you know, every time. They're super tough. They talk a mean game, but they're sweethearts. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that's kind of like, in terms of like the trope, in a lot of media, it kind of Mm -hmm. occupies the same spot as like Yakuza do, where like they're tough guys and they're technically criminals, but then if. Like a way of the house husband? Sure, yeah. For you know sure. this one? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Or like we were before we started recording, we were just talking about it in Korean movies where they have like the gangster mm-hmm. with a heart of gold, mm-hmm. um, you know, sweet home and train to Busan both do that. Um, yep. But so delinquents kind of are like that where they're like a tough guy who ends up being like a good person or a funny and endearing person, you know? Yu Yu Hakusho is full of delinquents. Mm-hmm. It's a whole show about delinquents fighting each other yeah but like and the supernatural <laughs> and and the supernatural mostly the supernatural sometimes each other yeah i really love the stuff that does like a twist on the like delinquent archetype or the delinquent genre mm-hmm. so like you hawk shows definitely in there um chromarty high school i know we've talked about that. oh my god yes <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> oh what a banana show i i think that's the funniest manga i've ever read um i don't think i ever read the manga i think i only saw the show the show is very good and it's very close in style and tone so i'm not even gonna say that you're missing anything out but i just i read it as a manga first and like it's one of those rare things where i was like reading it and i was like laughing out loud like while i was reading it perfect yeah crazy funny shit but parasite is also in that same kind of canon because it's about uh well so the manga is about like a total 80s style delinquent who gets an alien parasite embedded in his left hand and so he has to like learn to work with it and eventually they start working together to fight like a larger evil and prevent you know something horrible from happening sure you know it's a good story it's it's a good manga but that weird mix of like sci-fi body horror and delinquent story is just like so Mm -hmm. magical and so when they announced they're making an anime of it i was psyched because i was like oh i love that manga yes and then the anime came out and they totally scrubbed all the fun 80s stuff out of it yeah right i'm looking at it right now and the the drawings and the manga look super they look very very old-fashioned intentionally Mm -hmm. Yeah. The anime doesn't look like that at all. No. And it feels very generic. Like, it's not horrible. Like, it's not bad. But it was just really, like, disappointing, you know? Because mm. I think the aesthetic and that vibe, like, are a huge part of the story. Because they also kind of, like, change the main character. So he's not, like, sure. sort of a stoic tough guy anymore. He's just, like, a normal kid. And he's just... He's really bland. Oh. You know? Mm. Like always with the normal kid. Just an ordinary boy. Yeah. No. I'm just an ordinary high school teen boy. This is my parasite hand. Yeah. I wish I could talk to girls. <laughs> <laughs> what was that last one? <laughs> Instead I'll just talk to my parasite hand. 
Oh, parasite hand. When will I be able to talk to girls like I can talk to you? You're the only one who truly understands me. Please don't eat me in my sleep. I would never, Shuichi. <laughs> oh, God. Put a little sleeping cap on him. He's <laughs> your friend. He is really cute. The, the parasite is really cute. He's a little buddy. Mm-hmm. Have you seen or read, I have not, uh, Chainsaw Man? No. People keep telling me about it, but I haven't. I feel like every time I see something from it, everyone's like, this is the greatest page I've ever seen. And I'm like, this is terrifying. And I don't think I can read a full manga of it. <laughs> like it look, It's beautifully drawn mm-hmm. and it's just a lot. Like it's just really grotesque or? It's, just, it's really gory. There's a lot of, a lot of blood, mm-hmm. a lot of guts, a lot of, a lot of insides on the outsides. Sure. That's not where your intestines go, sir. <laughs> That's not the correct place. Well, I definitely think there's a distinction between like gore and horror. At least there is to Uh, me. Like they're not always the same thing, you know? Like I was actually talking about that when I was talking about um, Asian horror movies where like there are mm -hmm. some East Asian horror movies that aren't really horror movies at all, but they kind of get lumped in with them because they're so like intensely gory and violent. Like old boy, I think is a good example of that. Oh, okay. Where, like, sure. Old boy is a crime thriller, but like in the mm. West, at least it was marketed really heavily at like a horror audience because it's like the only people in 2003 who can handle this are probably freaks like me, <laughs> you know, like people like me. And so I was like, Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. But yeah, manga horror manga is weird in that way too because like there's some stuff that really trades heavily on the like super crazy like splash pages of gore. And mm-hmm. for that reason it kind of makes it hard to recommend. Like one that I think is actually super influenced by Jinji Ito and that I have recommended to people but I'm always like you have to be ready for a lot of weird fucked up shit that you will never get out of your brain is um MPD Psycho. Have you ever seen that? That sounds familiar. Um P D Psycho. What did we ever do before Google Image? <laughs> just lived what did we do? Do we have to like visualize things in our own brains? That sounds terrible. <laughs> we just lived in ignorance. Yeah, MPD Psycho is basically just the show Hannibal. It's like that. Oh yeah, I see an exposed brain. Mm-hmm. That's not great. That's not. <laughs> that's not how that should be. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna make you very sick. Yeah, it's a lot like Hannibal. And it's kind of the same thing where it's like, there are people who I'm sure can't watch Hannibal just for the scenes of violence and gore that are in it, you know? Sure. You know, they'll be missing out on one of the the greatest love stories of all time, but, you know. For sure. (laughs) The story of Will and and, and his therapist. Yeah, exactly. His very legitimate therapist. It's really more of a meet-cute rom-com than people say. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so too. Oh my goodness, this lady, the top of her head is just exploding blood. This is this is a lot. This is a whole lot. Yeah. And that's oh, like no your rib cage. That's a, a lot of the, the manga is that. Like, I don't know if I could read a whole book of this. Yeah, and there's a lot of volumes too. So It looks nice though, like it's well drawn. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the attention to anatomy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's crazy, but it's it's interesting though because I think like when you compare that to Jinji Ito, who I think inspired that comic a lot, like he doesn't really do too much of the crazy gore. Like even when people's insides are outside, it's so abstract or aestheticized that it's not like gore. You know, it doesn't seem to be what 
either what interests him or what drives his stories. Part of the reason that I think sometimes his work is sort of like misunderstood or miscategorized is because like people do just run with like the appearance of it. Uh, like mm. I think I do think that he kind of gets lumped in with like cosmic horror a little bit too much because it's just that a lot of his stories are really outlandish and like disturbing, sure. but honestly, a lot of times it's more just like the mysteries of the world. Like, um, you know, like there's a really great story about people who sort of, it's called the earthbound and it's like about people who get stuck, like standing in this weird, like almost like crucified position. Oh dear. Um, and it's just such a weird, like creepy, mysterious story, but there isn't some like big twist, like it's aliens or like, Oh, like we've unearthed the evil that causes this. It's always just like, this is really fucking weird. My roommate was just telling me this because I, t- I just watched the movie Pulse. Oh, that's one of my favorite movies of all time. Yes. Oh, so good. Yes. So good. Holy I just shit. watched it. And I was telling my roommate about it. And I was telling her about the scary walk. The scary walk that every ghost has to do mm-hmm. in every Japanese movie to terrify me specifically. Yeah. And she was like, it's the same thing all the time in Japan. They're like, what if we have this thing that's like a normal thing? but slightly off. Yeah. And that's what this crucifying standing thing is. Yeah. Well, like, yeah. you're just standing there and it's, it's normal. You're not doing anything, but it's kind of weird in a way that's extremely unsettling. Yeah, totally. Well, and I think that Ito was hugely influential on J-horror um, because yeah, mm-hmm. like that trope that repeats so often in his stories of like something is just slightly off was essentially the basis of like, the genre J horror stuff, you know, it's like, yeah. What if you couldn't trust the things you saw in your eye with your eyes? Or like, what if you didn't know what was in the corner of that room or like, you know, shit like how that. can the trees be real? If our eyes are not real. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, dude. Okay. I'm so, I'm so glad you watched pulse. You, you liked it. It seems you enjoyed it. I liked it so, so much. Let's talk about pulse. Dude. Okay. So pulse. <laughs> Let's is- talk about J horror. I'm always wanting to talk about J-Horror. It's basically like a meme, a meme at this point. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I didn't just start a podcast about J-Horror, but I have been slowly turning my podcast about horror video games into J-Horror. Yeah. <laughs> um, Pulse is really interesting to me like w- when you're comparing it to Ito because it has a lot of the hallmarks of like a long-form Ito story where there's a central mystery that starts really innocently and that seems simple, but very quickly is like, okay, it's not simple at Escalates all. Escalates yeah. enormously. It also does not give you any single answer. Oh, it explains nothing, which makes it so much better. Yeah. And it also, it doesn't just like decide not to tell you the answer. It instead shifts the focus towards like the characters and their emotions, which is, I think that's a very Ito tactic. So it doesn't just feel like, the movie didn't pay off what it set up. It instead is like, you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking over here, but you should be looking here. Yeah. I also think the thing about Pulse that I love the most is that it gets so weirdly apocalyptic at the end. Yes. Yes. For me, I'm not sure if I liked that. I was like, this worked so much better when it was on small scale, when it was just like mundane and creepy. Mm. It feels unusual. It feels like typically it stays small all the way through and it'll just stay at like that ground level of storytelling. And he was like, no, no, 
it's going to become huge. It's going to be an airplane crash. It's going to be an explosion. And you're like, what is this doing here? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You're actually totally right. Because even so in prep for this episode, I rewatched one of my favorite J-horror movies, which is Uzumaki based off the Ito novel. Uzumaki is really interesting because it actually relies on a lot of J-horror tropes. Like it's a very weird movie and it's a very unique mm. movie but it also uses J-horror like as its foundation. So it makes some changes to the story in order to fit it more into that mold and to keep it to 90 minutes, uh, basically. Yeah. And a big piece of that is that the scope of the original story, Uzumaki, is huge. Like what happens to the town is insane. Yes. You know? And, it, and then it takes over everything. Yeah. That doesn't happen in the movie. Like they shrink the scale down a lot and i i I don't mind it because once again i think it makes it work within that j-horror like and that was that came out in 2000 that's like right and like the epicenter of like the j-horror boom you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so i i think that you're totally right that the the normal j-horror styles keep things small and that's why i love that impulse it gets so huge and apocalyptic because it's also That's another Ito thing or a thing that I think Ito is good at is using something really outlandish as like a metaphor for something else. So like one could say it spirals out of control. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> now I'm the worst podcast guest. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, this is just podcast shit. You're doing it. You're a natural. Oh, you oh, need your no. own. Oh, oh no. My secret calling. <laughs> yeah. Forget Twitch streaming, dude. We're getting you on a podcast. You need to get like a little soundboard of like fart noises or something. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like a, a morning shock jock. Yeah. Okay. I think the podcast version would be really dated like YouTube sound clips you know oh yeah like yes yeah like i don't know the sample of chocolate rain plays or something oh my god chocolate rain (laughs) do you know that that guy is from uh minneapolis and he went to the u yeah he was there at the same time i was i used to see him walking around oh my god yeah is he nice what's his deal is he a he he seems nice my friend actually i guess had dinner with him once and i guess he's nice Oh. Yeah. Okay. So that's cool. Um <laughs> always fine. Always nice to hear people are good. <laughs> but yeah, so I like at the end of Pulse, I felt like the apocalyptic stuff kind of drove home the message of the movie that it was really all about like disconnection and loneliness and sadness. Mm-hmm. And so it's mm-hmm. like when you see the world crumbling, it's like, oh yeah, that's what having really bad depression feels like. Um, oh okay sure and that's kind of how I read it and that's something that I think happens a lot in Ito stories like that's that story the earthbound specifically is a lot like pulse but there's also ones like there's like the girl who marries into the family with all the strict customs Um, Mm. I don't want to say anymore because it's like that story is a really good twist Um, or like there's one called the hanging balloons where the people's heads are just like floating in the sky. Oh oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you like this? Yeah. And and even like with, with Gyo, like that's another story that's really crazy and outlandish, but it has this root in like, I don't know, like ecological anxiety or something Mm -hmm. where it's, Mm -hmm. that's always how I read this stuff where it's like, there's some other thing, that this idea is trying to communicate. Um, and, and that's something that I think is like just r- really a hallmark of his work. 
for me because even even like Amigara Fault, right, which is oh, like yes. the original like ring tape of Junjito stories. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it seems really outlandish because it's like these people who are going into these holes and disappearing into this mountain, sure. you know, and even like as that crazy outlandish thing is happening, there's like dialogue where it's like, oh, this is meant just for me. Like I literally fit in here. And it's like, right. Oh yeah. Like that's pretty obvious. Like talking about, you know, feeling like socially isolated and not feeling normal. And then there's also like that moment when we're like within the hole, there's always a, or at least I think for the main guy, I think it just follows one dude through the hole. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's like there comes a point where he like kind of wants to turn back but is unable to because of the way the hole is like constructed or whatever yep and just he has to keep pushing forward Mm -hmm. like he's physically forced to simply because he can't go back and because he doesn't want to stay in one spot right yeah and that's like that's that kind of idea of like not being able to go back on this choice and instead you're just like totally horribly deformed yeah by it of a decision you were so sure of to begin with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Well, and there's a couple different stories, too, that deal with, um, like, people's houses, specifically. Like, Mm. a home that they feel a strong connection to, essentially, like, turning them into a monster. Yeah. And once again, it's like that same idea of, like, you're using this story and these storytelling devices to express like a common societal anxiety. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I always think that that's like one of the strongest elements of his work, you know? Yeah. 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 But that's also like why I love pulse. Cause pulse is just like, I mean, that movie came out in the early 2000s and it was clearly like 2001. Yeah. Holy shit. And then I watched, I watched Ali I watched the side-by-side comparisons with the U.S. remake oh, no. with Kristen Bell. Oh, no. So I was like, I know I'd seen the trailer years ago, mm-hmm. and I forgot about it. The red tape thing seems cool, whatever. Yeah. And uh, I rewatched it, and I was like, YouTube was like, you want to see some side-by-side scene comparisons? And I was like, yes, I do, YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so, yes. Oh my god! It just—it's—it just misses the point in every possible way. If you want to know the importance of editing to get your message across, yeah, watch those side-by-side comparisons because it's just—it's constantly cutting the zoom. It's like it's just close. It's zoomed in. It's all wrong. Yeah, it's just—it doesn't convey anything. The tension isn't there. Nothing's there. Yeah, <sighs> it's so frustrating to watch like. A retelling of a story so completely missed the point. Mm-hmm. In a way, that feels very, very American to miss the point of like a movie that has been all about like isolation and loneliness. That's like very much societal, but also self-enforced to a point. Yeah. And the U.S. version is like, we don't have that here. Don't <laughs> worry about it. <laughs> that's never been a problem for anybody in the U.S. Yeah. Here's our movie with a lot of beautiful people. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Zero Brightness. If you'd like to support us directly, you can go to patreon.com slash zero brightness. You can also find and interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Discord. All the relevant links are at zerobrightness.com. We'll see you out there.
Well, and it's interesting too because the original one is like such a prescient story. Like it's always shocking to me that it came out in 2001 because the mm-hmm. the kind of the heart and soul of it is like even if we connect ourselves with the internet, we'll we won't be any closer to each other uh, unless we actually right. try and foster like real relationships. We'll still be completely alone, and that's a concept that everybody is mostly realizing now like 20 plus 25 years into like widely available commercial internet like so it was crazy that that movie got it like that early and then when you see the adaptation it's like literally the same story just without a soul like there's no soul to it they tried to just erase the messaging and make it right. Like, they're like, this is spooky because people die and become ghosts, right? That's why it's scary. And you're like, no, that's not why it's scary at all. Yeah, it's scary because it's sad. Yeah, it's like if you just if that's your goal, just make a fucking Scooby Doo movie. You know, like oh my god, Scooby Doo meets Pulse. <laughs> oh my god, imagine Scooby Doo plugs into the haunted, you know, fifty six k connection or whatever. Uh, they, the Scooby-Doo, where are you? He's inside the internet. He's trapped. He's like, help me, help me. And they're like, um, Scooby, I don't know what kind of a, what kind of a jam you got yourself into this time. I don't think we can help you out of this one, buddy. He's like, I'm so alone. (laughs) (laughs) Shaggy walks towards the camera very, very spookily, but it's just how he's walking because he's hungry. I've realized that life is meaningless, man. <laughs> I love this adaptation. Yeah, I would I would watch this. I mean, they're so weird and repressed. Oh, yes, they're so weird and repressed. Yes, they are. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they are. Only Shaggy has any kind of like depth to himself because he smokes weed. Yeah. In Cabin in the Woods, I think the stoner makes it to the end. That's right. And he's very much a Shaggy character. Yeah. Although, isn't it because he smoked weed? Like, yes, it protects him. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's what it is. The MK Ultra doesn't work on him because he he smoked weed. I for yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, he brought his own supply. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is actually a good segue into talking about adaptations of Junji Ito's stuff. Uh, I'm curious. Yes. Like, do you have much experience with the adaptations of his work? Like, have you seen any of these? No. Yeah, I was sort of, uh, I was watching briefly um, uh, a Let's Play of that video game. What's it called? World of Horror. Yeah. World of Horror. Yeah. So terrible at this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was watching a Let's Play of that. And I don't know if I got far enough in to really see. There's a couple of Junji Ito references that were very obvious. Mm -hmm. um, So sprinkled in. And as an overall concept, it was a little hard for me to read any kind of influence, possibly because I didn't get that far in, but also possibly because uh, RPGs are a bit difficult for me to follow as a narrative. Yeah. Um, Which may or may not change if I were to actually play it. Yeah, it kind of is. I think that it's sort of interesting that everyone is just like, this is the Jinji Ito video game, because it's, it kind of like, isn't it feels very much like its own thing yeah it it sort of is and isn't at the same time is kind of how like i would phrase mm-hmm. it but i think it's taken on or it's like gotten such a big profile because jinji ito adaptations are mostly horrible uh yeah they've been doing them for a while now and like i've seen almost all of them which is so 
upsetting <laughs> to me. Um, like, uh, so for years they would make Tomie movies because I'm assuming in Japan that was just like a popular series or his most popular series, you know? I feel like doing an evil school girl is a big, a big thing. Yeah. Exactly. Over there, right? Yeah. So like she's so beautiful, but she's so evil. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. How could something so beautiful turn on me like this? I didn't see this coming at all. Yeah. No, totally. And it's it's interesting that like the original stories I personally don't feel are like super misogynistic or like carry like that kind of no. messaging, but a lot of no, them I don't get that. It- yeah. A lot of the movies do, dude. Like they're just really and they're also just really shitty um like they're just really bad movies basically there's Mm -hmm. one that's like okay um it's an extremely okay movie and i can never remember which (laughs) one it is because as you can imagine it just didn't leave too much of an impression on me i think it might be tomie unlimited (laughs) Oh, oh no, unlimited Tomie. <laughs> unlimited Tomies. Oh no, you know what it is? <laughs> Sorry, it's Tomie Rebirth. That's what it is. Rebirth. Yeah. Oh no. So Tomie oh, Rebirth dear. is a 2001 movie and it's directed by Takashi Shimizu, who famously created the Juan franchise. He, well, and he's actually a good choice to do a Jinji 2 adaptation because he did a movie called Marabito. Um, that is very good and is essentially like his take on like an Ito style cosmic horror story, you know? Um, it has a lot in common with, I guess, a lot of the hallmarks of an Ito story that we've been talking about. So people should check that sure. out. And I've also ar- I've already told people or to watch it like six times on this podcast. So if they don't now, then they just <laughs> truly are never going to watch this movie. But from what I know about The Grudge, which is not very much because I haven't seen it because I think it came out. Oh, of course, because the U.S. version came out around the same time as The uh-huh. Ring, <laughs> and they were bad. they were making the American adaptations. And The Ring scared me so so badly that I was like, "No, I'm not watching The Grudge. Oh, <laughs> no, I've yeah. had enough of these these adaptations that want to murder me. Sure, no, thank you." So I just never got around to it. And then by the time like the sort of the buzz of J horror had kind of died down, I just never got around to it. I think it was sort of became kind of a parody to be like to make that sound yeah. or like you know, that kind of thing. So I just never got around to it, but now I want to. Yeah. Because everyone's quiet about it. I'm like, okay, I'll watch my movie in peace. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> but yeah, for sure. I feel like it has Junji kind of energy unintentionally or not with this, the sense of like, ha- sort of like a haunted house story kind of yeah. but like angry ghosts and hair moving everywhere. And that sort of thing. Yeah. It's like an abstract, haunted house story with a bunch of body horror yeah so it definitely yeah, i never thought about that speaking of which i only just saw house for the first time oh do you love it i went in knowing that it was a weird movie uh-huh. i was like i know this movie is weird i know it's gonna be a weird time uh-huh. i was no way prepared <laughs> it was yeah. so bizarre i loved it very much yeah I love Kung Fu. She's my favorite. Yeah. Kung Fu rocks. Um, dude, that movie rocks. I actually recently bought a house shirt. Oh, nice. Is it like bright orange with the face on it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like sort of like maroon color kind of. And then it has like the Japanese poster art on it. Uh, nice, nice, nice. The people who talk to you when you wear that are really weird. I believe this. 
the guy who directed it apparently is the guy who is sort of, he, he does commercials. He did commercials. I think he's dead by now. And he's the one who's like single-handedly responsible for why Japanese commercials are so famously weird. Like why they have that look and feel that they do. Oh, wow. It's because of him. Wow. And watching House and like in retrospect, I'm like, that makes so much sense because the whole movie feels like an insane Japanese commercial. Yes, for sure. Oh, that's crazy. I didn't know that, but that makes so much sense. Like puts everything into context. Yeah, for sure. Like I've seen a couple um Japanese movies from the sixties and seventies that kind of have that crazy manic energy where it just keeps switching gears mm-hmm. and doing visual gags, but nothing like like house. I mean It's so bonkers. It's so bonkers. And it's just it's making use of so many like uh like mediums within the film it's not just like straight movie like here's some actors doing some things with effects mm-hmm. it's like here's a lot of paper cutouts mm-hmm. here's some weird drawings that i scribbled on it's everything yeah all the time constantly yeah and yet it still has like a followable narrative through everything it's it's bananas yeah it's like a fever dream yeah for sure no i, I love that movie it's it's so wild. There's yeah, there's a, a movie from the '60s called uh, Gate of Flesh that like Gate of Flesh kind of has. It's like a really dark drama that has similar energy, where it just keeps doing weird visual okay. bits and like changing gears every ten minutes, and it's just really fucking crazy. That's a that's a very wild movie. Uh, I, I really like that movie. Nice. Um. Yeah, Takashi Shimizu though, dude, he's a he's a great director. Juan is great. What is the movie that you said that is good of his? That's not a, a ring one or a ring. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's uh, Marabito. Marabito is awesome. It's basically about a guy who captures someone's death on camera, and then goes through this weird like obsession with like finding this place and so he like goes deep underground and like finds this strange like creature woman underground and brings her topside and then just all these strange things start happening yeah it's cool it's very cool and it's so much like a Jinji Ito story that it's crazy but yeah his actual Jinji Ito adaptation is is pretty good it's not amazing but it's definitely the best of like the Tomie movies the Ito adaptation that I think is fucking aces is the movie Uzumaki. That you were telling me to watch. Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. Yep. Yes. I know I've seen the trailer for it way back and was unable to find it anywhere at the time. So it's good that it's on Prime and I can finally watch it. Yeah. Because I remember seeing like the image of the girl with the big spirally hair when it's just like swaying. Mm-hmm. Very cool look. Yeah, well, so it's such a weird movie because in some ways it's like a very faithful adaptation and in other ways it takes Mm -hmm. like gigantic liberties with the story. So like I mentioned earlier, it shrinks it down in scope. So (laughs) it's a lot more just focused on the two two main characters, which is like Kyrie and her boyfriend, whatever his name is. Uh, (laughs) Oh, what's his name? Kyrie and Kyrie's boyfriend. Yeah, Kyrie and scary boyfriend.jpg. Um... (laughs) Uh, but yeah, so it's much more focused on them and like their story. It's shorter. The ending is a little bit less like out of control than in the manga, but it has this weird look and feel to it. So it's all like 
very cartoony. Very green. It's green as fuck, but it's also like super cartoony. Like there's all these editing things and like cartoony sound effects. And it's not even like an anime. It's like Looney Tunes. Um, Interesting. Which I think is kind of an inspired choice because there's also like a lot of humor in Ito's work. Like just kind of pointing out the ridiculousness of the scenarios or, you know. I feel like if you go too hard with, I feel, because I feel like the comic is not Junji Ito trying to be scary. I feel like he's like, here's this idea that freaks me out and I'm going to try and tell you why I find it so scary and not... I'm going to scare you with this thing. Right. It's personally, this is disgusting to me. Let me show you how. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of the adaptations are like coming off of their experiences as an audience member. Mm -hmm. And so they're communicating like, I was very scared. Now I'm making a thing to scare you because it scared me. And it's not quite the same energy. And it winds up missing the mark. This is my guess, having not seen any adaptations. (laughs) No, you're 100% right. It kind of goes back to what I was saying about Parasite, where it's like, if you remove something essential from the original, then the adaptation will fail. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think adaptations need to be note for note, like remakes all the time. I actually usually don't end up liking those because they drag, but you can't eliminate something that's essential to the work. Right. I feel like a Looney Tunes energy is correct, right? Because yeah. it's like, it's just so weird and bananas. And if you happen to be scared by it, then you've had the natural reaction to it. Yeah. But it isn't like, let me sit down and, t- and try my best to scare you. Yes. And there's also these weird changes in tone that come out of nowhere. So like suddenly a scene is really dark and or gory and scary. And it's like, damn, this is crazy actually you know like this is just so wild oh no but yeah it's a great movie i think it's a great adaptation um it's it takes a lot of weird liberties and makes some really distinct choices that i could see people not liking but sure i've seen it like so many times because i love it I've, this is probably like the sixth time i've watched that movie and i was like <laughs> still got it still got it still man. good still good still good hold up <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, so it's interesting then to look at the game world of horror because I do think it kind of takes that same tactic. Like the best way I can describe world of horror in terms of being an adaptation is that it's like um, that show Castle Rock. Why is that super familiar? It's like the Hulu show that's supposed to be like, it's kind of like a world based on Stephen King. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's set in a town that has a bunch of Stephen King characters and references and other things in it. And, like, the second season, for example, does, like, I think it does, like, uh, Salem's Lot and another book, like, at the same time because they, like, exist in the same universe. Same verse. Yeah. That's cool. And so that's kind of what World of Horror does, except it's not using anything distinctly lifted from Ito. There's just like some visual similarities. Um, Mm. Characters kind of look like they could be Ito characters. And then the situations it sets up are like very Ito, you know? Right. And there seemed like there were a couple very, very direct references in terms of... uh, the spirals. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. There's spirals and certain things where like people kind of 
do the same things that you would expect people to do in an Ito novel. So mm-hmm. like the way the game is set up is that each play is just a one shot start to finish. Just you don't like save and continue your story. You just like oh, start no. and see if you can get you to just the- gotta do it. Yeah. And you die a lot is like the other thing. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> um okay. uh, <laughs> but so like uh when you start the game you get to go to your house and you can choose like what mystery you want to start you usually have like i think it's five mysteries per play um Mm -hmm. and like when you start a mystery you just start exploring a storyline and they're all things like you know there's reports that there are occult rituals happening at the school so you go to a school you explore by just like clicking where you want to go and moving room to room you're trying to find items once you have all the items and you meet some characters you go to the boss you fight a boss the story is over but like there's tons of like flavor text like popping on screen all the time and there's like tons right. of just like little things happening on screen all the time and it just really has that like ito no, the look of it is it. very good yeah i like the look of it and i love the 8-bit soundtrack it's always good oh my god the soundtrack is well, so it's... good dude mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. But it is interesting that like, so it's like a dungeon crawler type game, which were like old Japanese PC games that were just point and click. Like you're not moving a character around mm, or anything. You're mm-hmm. just kind of clicking. I want to go to this room and sure. I want to do this action. Let me look at inside this drawer. Yeah, exactly. You can play it without like a knowledge of like action games or oh, anything okay. like that. But the way that they kind of compensate for that in terms of making it like difficult and hard to parse is not only putting tons of systems in the game, but putting tons of shit on screen. Like uh, I'm sure you I notice see. the interface is just like absolutely bonkers. Yes. It's very, very busy. Yeah. Not a bad way. Not it, a bad way. Dude, the first time you play it though, it's like, what in the hell? Like it, I felt like I was sitting behind like a <laughs> console of an airplane or something. Oh my God. <laughs> Low stakes airplane. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's really crazy, but, and you know, luckily the game gives you multiple easy modes. So like I also said before okay. we were recording that, like I accidentally played it a few times on like the, you always win mode. And I was like, damn, I'm so good at this game. And I was like, Oh wait, like, maybe I'm a gamer. <laughs> maybe I'm maybe a pro I should, gamer. Maybe I should be a pro gamer. <laughs> should I get a little track jacket? My <laughs> name on it. I think so. Where is the competitive yes. world of horror league? I want to join. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Just a bunch of people playing a single player computer game in the same room. <laughs> it's really That's sad. how it becomes pulse. <laughs> oh god, yeah, that is very pulse. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's an interesting take on adapting Ito's work. Because it's it's something similar to what like the game Eternal Darkness did with like the Lovecraft like cosmic horror thing, where they're like we're going to do something that's in the same style, but we're going to make our own world and our own mythos. And we're just going to make it all make sense, which I do think is like a pretty strong tactic when doing an adaptation. Like I would yeah, probably definitely. argue that Marabito, that movie I told you to watch is like the best yes. Junji Ito movie so far. <laughs> right. Sort of an unofficial Junji Ito movie. Yeah, for sure. And I think in video games, that's kind of borne out where it's like, a lot of the best like quote-unquote trivia stuff are actually 
uh, original games that are paying tribute to like an existing work, you know? Sure. Kind of something recently. What was it that had like big Silent Hill vibes? Oh yeah, the medium. It was good. It was really. They got the Akira Yamoka, the guy who does all the music and who directed the original games, to do the music for it. It was super cool. Well, and then there's also the endless hamster wheel of people claiming there's a new Silent Hill game, which is a very sound. I was going to hope that that was going to end with something like it's the endless hamsters. (laughs) I was like, hamster adaptations of Silent Hill. I was like, yes, I would like this very much. Thank you. Oh, you didn't see the episode of Hamtaro where they just do Uzumaki? Oh oh my god. little hamster pyramid head oh god hello konami i have a million dollar idea for you (laughs) you're gonna want to sit down for this are you sitting okay good oh here it is hamsters wall to wall hamsters so you know silent hill what if it was hamsters Um, I'm going to take your silence to mean you really, really are into it. <laughs> You're psyched, right? Oh, you've hung up on me. Okay. It's just me and the hamsters now. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's all I need. <laughs> me and my hamsters. Me and my horror hamsters. Here, no, here's a question for you I wanted to ask you about adaptations, so, you know, since you are a comics artist. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there are certain things that make comics difficult to adapt into movies because there's a lot of bad like movies like based on comics and I thought that was always curious because it's like a visual medium to another visual medium right it should be very straightforward it's like it's already been storyboarded for you yeah what are you worrying about yeah do you like do you feel there's things that stand out to you as like oh that's like why that happens you know I I'm blanking completely on comic adaptations that aren't like, you know, superhero movies. Sure. And so I'm going to try and think of some. <laughs> well, there's Ghost World, I guess. Oh, right. Yeah. I like Ghost World. I think Ghost World is a very successful adaptation. Yeah, because they got the writer to write a script for it. Yeah. Well, and like that's kind of what I'm thinking of too, where it's like in order to do it successfully, that have the dude come back and write a new screenplay that's different from the the graphic novel, you know? Right, and it makes sense because like if you're a cartoonist and you're writing your own stuff, you should already be good at dialogue. Right. And people are always like, oh, you can't write for movies. It's not like a similar thing. It's a different, you know, it's a totally different kind of way to write. And I. I'm going to assume that's true. I've never written a movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it seems close enough in terms of like writing dialogue and writing something that's very visual. Mm-hmm. And yet there's that gap. Yeah. And I don't know what it is. Uh, I'm going to be thinking about this. It's interesting. I'll come up with a really good answer in like a week. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll buy you some time. I'll mention something. Although the, oh, this is super cursed. So maybe I just will end up even cutting oh, no. this. But. I think it's just throw my headphones off. (laughs) No. Someone who I super don't want to talk about, but I think is relevant to this conversation is Zack Snyder because. Oh yes. Let's talk about Zack Snyder. I think people have forgotten now because he's in the news for so many other reasons, but Mm -hmm. he really rose to prominence by making two movies that literally did frame for frame word for word. Oh wait, 300. And what's the other one? Sin City. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 
Oh, that's right. All right. Full disclosure, I remember enjoying Sin City when it came out, but I was also in high school. Yeah, same. Yeah. And my brain wasn't fully formed, so that's not on me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm an innocent. Oh, for sure. No, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Uh, Re-Sin City. Right? Yeah. But he's kind of like an argument that you can do it, but it ends up being really crass. And I don't know if that's his choice of source sure. material or if that's just like what happens when you do that. You know, I would have to go back... This, in, this would involve me having to go back and reread Sin City or read 300 and then watch the movies. And I cannot do that no. to myself. <laughs> don't do that. No. <laughs> so I will, so I'll never know. Absolutely. Never don't know. Do that. Well, here's another, here's another thing I think of a lot too is, uh, have you seen very many live action, uh, adaptations of anime or manga? Like the Roni Kenshin movies, or I have seen a couple clips of the Kenshin movies, and I think that they work really well. But again, I've only seen clips. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, I'll wind up doing one or the other. I normally don't do both because it, it'll feel too repetitive, kind of. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of some comic adaptations. Oh, The Crow. The Crow. It works. I yeah. would say the movie is better than the comic. Hmm. Interesting. They're different. They're pretty that's, that's different. That's my hot take. That's my hot take. Yeah. Oh, then of course Scott Pilgrim. Of course. Yeah. Again, I think the movie is better. I do think that movie is better. Can, also, it condenses everything. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of superhero stuff coming up. Yeah. And then a lot of Alan Moore stuff coming up. But a lot of this is stuff that I don't feel too closely to the source material of the comic right so it's difficult for me to say if something's been lost or if something's been gained i do think that just by the nature of what the mediums are something has to change for them to be successful right and the way that people view it the way that people consume the media is different so there has to be alterations no i think that's really interesting because that kind of gets me thinking of like when you lay out a page for a comic, mm. you're kind of, I, I assume, I don't know. Cause I don't, I don't do comics. Um, I, I did a comic <laughs> once and I don't think it's good at all. So, uh, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you're kind of thinking about how the reader's eye is going to move across the page and you're trying to create like a, mm-hmm. vi- well, a vision. Already you've done more thinking than most comic writers <laughs> have. So put it that way. <laughs> Yeah. You're better off. Well, I, I also, I do, the visual medium that I engage with the most is like video editing. And like with video editing, you're trying to create like, or at least when there's music involved, because that's mostly what I do is like music videos or musical, sure. you know, adjacent videos. Like I did ads for like a gear company for like a few years. And like, you're trying to create like a, a rhythm and like a tempo sure. to the visuals so that the the viewer just kind of keeps their eye on it. And I think like with co- with comic books is a similar thing of like, oh, well, what is the tempo of this going to be? If someone's eye is moving across the page, what am I leading towards, mm-hmm. you know? Right. It's sort of like, it's all those like horrible little nuts and bolts that like, if you do your job right, your audience won't notice it. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. They'll just have a better, a better experience enjoying your story. Right. Yeah, and it's sort of frustrating in that way because it's sort of a thankless job mm-hmm. <laughs> to do like all that stuff. But again, if you do it right, 
no one can tell. Yeah. And I, I also think with horror manga and specifically Ito and stuff that's been influenced by him, the layouts are a lot more weird and ornate. I've noticed like there's lots of like little mm. panels and little cut-ins to like kind of establish the rhythm. And it's usually because you're trying to lead up to either like a big splash page that is scary or that is just like horrifying, you know, like, sure. like this is really weird, like huge grotesque drawing. Right. And like, <laughs> I think that is something that is a bit difficult to translate into like a film because you can't do that same thing literally. So you have to like create your own visual thing that has its own tempo and its own speed that conveys the same feeling of like, Oh, these pages are kind of speeding up. It's sort of a breathless sprint towards this thing, or it's like a creeping motion towards like this big reveal, you know, you can really control both of both in comics and movies. You have a, kind of a sense of control over pacing yeah in movies more so i think yeah where you can just be like this is how you this is how long it's going to take you to get to this thing right you know in a movie you're a you're a much more passive audience Mm -hmm. and when you're reading something you're more active audience and that also changes it but i don't know how much it changes it in terms of how you create it oh no yeah that makes total sense Well, and I think it's also Mm. too, like you're always balancing, like how much do you keep exactly the same versus how much do you uh, like totally create something new? Like we were talking about, so there's a new Uzumaki adaptation that's coming out soon. And it's coming out next year. um, That looks really good. And that mostly looks good because it's like, it looks exactly like, the comic you know like it has this very delicate it's so close yeah it's black and white it has this delicate art style and so i don't know maybe with someone like ito like the Zack snyder method will work because <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's already so visually intense that it's like there for you you know treatment is ready yeah i think i wonder if if part of this adaptation thing is like do you have to judge it based on whether or not it's a good piece of media on its own like is it a good movie versus is it a good adaptation of its source material and i think sometimes those two things have to happen separately oh yeah so i'm still staring at like this page of adaptations (laughs) Uh you have like like ghost world is not an especially faithful adaptation right because if i remember the comic right it's been a while since i read it it's a bit more of like uh short stories almost of the characters yeah Mm -hmm. like it isn't a cohesive story in the same way that the movie is right but the movie sort of puts all those pieces together and makes it a cohesive thing and it works yeah because we're reformatted it yeah and it's, it's the same thing for a different medium and it works really really well for sure. And it doesn't do any disservice to the source material. And the source material still stands up really well on its own. With a lot of these superhero movies, a lot of the problems stem from the effects not being up to snatch. Right. You know, like it's a lot easier to draw a human torch speeding around than it is to be like, and now we're sitting Chris Evans on fire uh-huh. and he's going to go zoom around the city with Jessica Alba and her blue contacts. <laughs> and you're like, 
if the blue contacts aren't convincing, why would the rest of it be? Yeah. You know? For sure. And it's just, you, there's so much more to get hung up on because it's it's so much more immediately real. Yeah. Just by the nature of what it is. And you're seeing real people doing real things. It's the same like when they make, they're making those awful, awful Disney live action adaptations of things, oh, right? sure, yeah. They're like, we've just released Cinderella, now it's live action. And you're like, but why? Uh-huh. We're making new Snow White, it's live action. We're making live action Lion King, but that's debatable because they were all CG, so it's still a cartoon. <laughs> what are you doing, Disney? Yeah, that was confusing. And it, it's very confusing. <laughs> and it's like that kind of sense of disbelief that the what is it uh, suspension of belief yeah. that you can have for for a comic or a cartoon doesn't apply for live action stuff yeah and so you have i think a lot of times that's what gets it all lost in translation is that that doesn't get considered or there's an idea that it will just translate seamlessly mm-hmm. but it doesn't unless you have like the right person in charge. For instance, the mask has come up as an adaptation. I didn't realize it was a comic originally. Oh. Yeah, I didn't know that either. But it totally works because it's taken a very cartoony sensibility to it. Well, and they got Jim Carrey, who just is like a... Of course, a living cartoon. Yeah. But did you know they tried to do a sequel with Jamie Kennedy? And it was horrible. I sure do. <laughs> yeah, because I sure do know about that. It's fucking Jamie Kennedy. Like that is a really good example of why you need the right team <laughs> on the right project every time, or else you get nightmare fuel. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. That it just has to be good on its own first. And I, th- I think that's why I like these abstract. They're not really adaptations, but you're just heavily influenced by types of works more than I end up liking mm-hmm. a straight adaptation. So it's like... That makes so much sense. Yeah. And that's why I think the movie Uzumaki is so good, because even though it is a straight adaptation, technically, stylistically, it is not. It's so wacky that it's like... Sure. I feel yeah. like that's the same thing with Ghost World and Scott Pilgrim. Yes. Where it's... It's very, very faithful to the source material, and yet it has its very own thing going on. Yeah. Yeah, I think with both of those movies, too, they kind of fixed story problems within the comics, Yeah, you know? Which is always fun, like using an adaptation as a way to to solve things. It can also get interesting, because with Scott Pilgrim, they started working on the movie before he'd finished the series. Yeah. And Brian Lee O'Malley was like, here's my outline for the final book. So you know what's going to happen. So we all get to the same point. Mm-hmm. But then the movie sort of takes off in its own direction and the series takes off in its own direction. And that's pretty fun to watch. Yeah. And I think the ending of the movie is much better. Yes, I agree. And it kind of stops being like an adaptation at that point. Because like in the final act of Scott Pilgrim and the final book in the series, you can sort of see them working in parallel. And I think if you were to put them right up next to each other, for the sake of comparing and contrasting, you would get something really interesting in terms of what it means to adapt something from one medium to another. Well, and I think that's an interesting example because you can see the two creators' different ideas about how you wrap up a long-form story like that. Because like the movie is just like, it has to come together in a way that doesn't feel forced, but is satisfying. And Right, and it has to be done super fast. Yeah. 
And then the book is like, let's make it as weird and stretch it out as long as we can. And let's kind of end on a weird, like unresolved note. And then, yeah, great. Thanks. Let's also take six years to make it or whatever. You know, there's like some huge gap between the last two books. Yeah. Yeah. But then it also becomes interesting. I'm looking at stuff like it's, I'm just looking at this big list of things I'm telling you. (laughs) Uh, Like, the New Mutants. Did anybody even see that? Did that come out? I feel like I remember seeing commercials right before lockdown and they were like, uh, we're releasing this anyways. We've decided. Yeah. It says it's on HBO Max. Yeah, I was not even aware of um, that. And it's kind of a... I don't know if this is The New Mutants is based on a specific comic or if it's just sort of the comic characters because I don't follow Cape Comics closely right. since... High school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So no one talked about it. I think it was supposed to be in the works forever. And I don't know if it got like subjected to studio hell or what was happening. But the idea, I think, of taking a bunch of comic book characters and putting them together for your movie and then making an original movie is very, very cool. Mm. I think that's a good one. You've got your own kind of mythos that you're going to make for your movie. And you're sort of pick, you get to pick and choose, yeah. which I think is very useful. You're not relying on like the convoluted comics thing. Yeah, and I'm like I'm super ignorant of superhero movies. Like I stopped watching them in like the mid 2000s or whatever. What was the last superhero movie you saw in theaters? Uh, I think it was Iron Man. Uh, oh, the first one. Yeah, which is like super racist (laughs) it sure is it sure is i was so mad i was so (laughs) angry and i was like fuck these movies watching it like uh are you guys sure (laughs) yeah and it's just like i guess i'll watch robert downey jr zoom around yeah it's just like tony stark (laughs) fist pumping to like back in black because he did a racism oh my god yes hooray Is Jeff Bridges meant to be a brown man in this movie? <laughs> I don't remember, but that would be is he, horrifying. Because I remember, I didn't realize it was Jeff Bridges the whole movie because he's bald with a beard. And that confused me. That made my brain go, this is a whole new person you've never seen before. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, and when I found out it was him, I was like, oh, I didn't realize he was a white guy. Yeah. Which makes me wonder if he's supposed to be no. brown facing it. Oh, that was the era no. when you could do that. No. So. Sure. You just, that was sort of the end of the tail end of when you could get away with that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Like I, I'm just like super ignorant of those movies, but at the same time, I know that the ones that have been big breakouts are usually not based on like a single thing. No, really like faithfully so like i mean when i was still Mm -hmm. watching superhero movies the most like critically acclaimed one was like the christopher nolan batman movies like the first two Mm -hmm. and those are kind of famously not based on anything like it's like okay we took influence from this this book and this book and this and it's like four or five books all mixed together and it's like oh yeah that's whatever you think of those movies or whatever you think of that director it's like that's a smart way to approach that you know right same with the Tim Burton ones. Yeah. Right? Where they're, it's just kind of like, okay, you know, I know that there's like, there's a guy, he's a Batman. That's cool. Let's do this. Yeah. Here's my my early German influence. Uh-huh. <laughs> Here it is for you. Thank you, Tim Burton. Yeah. 
or there's like um uh in the the animated series from the 90s the best thing in the whole wide world yeah yep like that wasn't really taking anything directly from the comics i don't think it was obviously influenced by them yeah and then i think but i feel like it almost did more in turn the other way where the show was much more influential to the comics than the comics were to the show yeah yeah i mean they just did a really good job and they also point out the thing that nobody wants to talk about which is that like most batman stuff kind of sucks like it really really does like okay so when i was a kid i thought the idea of batman was really cool but then like i'd buy you know comics or i'd go to the library and check out like the collected like works of that and i'd be reading i was like god it's so boring so boring so, it's so boring. boring. So like the Tim Burton Batman I thought was cool. Very cool. I like that. Yes. And then when yes. the cartoon came out, the animated series, I was like, oh shit. The best. Yeah. So good. And so that that opening. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> In my mind, that's like what Batman is. And Yeah. Yep. I think that's like yeah. that to me that's the source material. I'm like, this is the official one. Batman didn't exist before that. <laughs> I think, you know, in a roundabout way, this is actually proving what you said earlier. That it's like, oh yeah, it's more mm-hmm. important that the work itself is good than as a standalone thing. Yeah. Than a faithful adaptation. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yes, I am correct. I am a genius always. Yeah, well that's why I asked you on here. I knew <laughs> these things. Oh. Uh, um oh, do you want to hear a story I just learned about Adam West. Sure. Which is that him and the actor who played the Riddler, whose name I forget, mm-hmm. they were invited to a Hollywood party that turned out to be an orgy. Okay. And they like didn't know that that was what the situation was going to be. So they decided, they're like, let's do this completely in character as Batman and the Riddler. And they did. And everyone was like cracking up to the point where they got thrown out <laughs> of the orgy. <laughs> which somehow is the most Adam West Batman thing to happen. Yeah. Ever. Absolutely. Just to be so oblivious much. of your own like sexual implications and get kicked out of the orgy <laughs> for being Batman. Yeah, that's yes. Adam West all over. It's so good. It's so so good. Yeah. And I'm like, I deeply wish that that had been recorded. Uh-huh. I want to know what you said to these these orgy party goers, these unsuspecting orgy party goers. Oh yeah. Big time. Yeah, we need the tapes. Give us the tapes. I want to know what what the last straw was where someone's like, okay, that's enough, buddy. You got to (laughs) go.